0: Once they've ovulated and the progesterone levels in the body have risen that temperature will rise by about um, 0.2 or more degrees Celsius or, or half a degree Fahrenheit and stay elevated until um, till the next menstrual cycle starts.
1: Fertility awareness based methods of contraception are increasingly popular. Their premise is that sexual intercourse can only lead to pregnancy during approximately six to nine days of the menstrual cycle, commonly known as the fertile window. In recent years, more and more of these methods have been developed, including several smartphone apps that claim to offer a natural and effective alternative to hormone contraceptives. But how effective are they? Uh, Are these claims backed up by high quality evidence? And where should fertility awareness-based methods sit alongside other methods of pregnancy prevention, such as hormonal contraception, that clinicians may be more familiar with? I'm Tom Nolan, GP in London and an Associate Editor for the BMJ. To help answer these questions, I'm joined by the authors of a clinical update on this topic recently published on bmj.com. Rachel Arutia is Assistant Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of North Carolina. Hi Rachel.
0: Hi, happy to Hi. be here.
1: Yeah, thanks for joining us. And Chelsea Pollis is a Senior Research Scientist at the Guttmacher Institute in New York. Hi Chelsea.
2: Hello, thanks for having Hi. us.
1: Thank you, no thanks. So let's start with this term Fertility Awareness Based Methods or FABM. Uh, I must admit, I hadn't heard of this term until fairly recently, uh, and I think that others others haven't as well. C- can you describe what this is in, in a bit more detail
0: for us? So fertility awareness-based methods um, are a group of family planning methods that help users identify which days of the menstrual cycle are the most weakened or the most likely to lead to pregnancy if they have intercourse. And so they... Um, Depending on the method, track changes in one or more biomarkers, and that allows them to estimate, or the the method estimates for them, if it's algorithm-based, which are the days of the highest fecundity. And those days, they could choose to avoid unprotected intercourse in order to avoid getting pregnant. Um, Or in some cases, although not not the focus of this article, they could actually try to conceive by focusing on having intercourse on those days that are the most beaconed.
1: Okay. And what, what are those different ways of tracking the, the, the high and low days of fecundability?
0: So, one of the simplest is um, just the menstrual cycle date, because um, those tend to be highly correlated with each other from cycle to cycle in many women. Um, but um, because um, most women actually have some variation in their cycle and their day of ovulation. Um, many fertility awareness-based methods also use um, biomarkers that are based on actual symptoms of the rising and falling hormone levels. So um, one biomarker is basal body temperature. And this um, is when women measure their body temperature every morning before getting out of bed. And there is sort of a basal um, temperature that they can estimate. And once they have ovulated and the progesterone levels in the body have risen. That temperature will rise by about um, 0.2 or more degrees Celsius or, or half a degree Fahrenheit and stay elevated until um, till the next menstrual cycle starts. So, so that's one <clears throat> based um, biomarker that people use. Another is um, cervical mucus. Um, so the cervix starts to produce um, the cervix is, is continually producing mucus, but as the estrogen levels rise prior to ovulation, it starts secreting a mucus um, that's more watery and clear and um, wet. And because of its properties, it helps nourish and it, uh, sperm and help sperm get to the appropriate place in the uterus to fertilize an egg. And so it also, because it's very watery, um, makes its way down to the vulva. And so women can detect the cervical mucus when they wipe um, as they're going to the bathroom or sometimes even just walking around throughout the day feeling um, a sensation of mucus. And so um, that is another biomarker women use mm. to, to tell them that they are fecund. And then once ovulation happens, and again, the progesterone levels rise, that mucus actually changes um, quite Quite interestingly, and many women don't aren't able to, to feel it anymore because it's more sticky and plug like, and it tends to stay up in the cervix. Although some women can still have some cervical secretions, but they notice a very um, a very large change in the quality of that cervical. And then um, another common biomarker that um, women use is urine hormone monitoring, um, and this is usually in the form of monitoring rising estrogen um, metabolites in the urine and also the luteinizing hormone surge that happens at ovulation. And so women track these to see when their fecundity is rising and then also estimate when it ends based on when the luteinizing hormone surge happened. And there are a few other biomarkers that are used, but those are the most common.
1: Right. And are, they, are those easy to learn? Are they, you know, can anybody do this or? or... Do you need training or some other instruction?
0: Well, it, it, the answer is it depends. But yes, they're amazingly easy to learn. you know, I'm the, one of the, the most um, consistent responses that I see from patients is especially about cervical mucus and, and, and somewhat about temperature that, wow, I'm X number of years old, 35 years old. And. I never knew this about my body, and I can't believe how clear it is when I start paying attention. So, and there have been studies, um, particularly about cervical mucus and um, monitoring, in many countries around the world, many um, levels of literacy, visually impaired women, even um, who all, which all show that the vast majority of women are able to to, um, to see and and to to evaluate this. With the, With the different methods, methods I think there's I think kind there's of a kind
2: different, different uh, amount of time that of time may be necessary, necessary to, learn to learn them. Some are much um, much simpler, and some, and some are much more involved, involved, and take, involved, and might take you know much more much more time, time, to, time be to be trained on. Trained on. Mm-hmm. Learning, Learning the, method the method is one thing, is one thing, thing. and then, um, and then um, um, being, being able to, correct- to correctly use the method over a long period of time is another. And these are methods that do require quite a bit of user activity. User action action in order order to use the method correctly.
0: So I think that's also worth uh, mentioning. uh, mentioning. Yeah, yeah. Right, and I just thank you, Chelsea. I I also wanted to to say too that there's kind of a difference between being able to to um, measure or assess the biomarker, which a lot of women can learn to do on their own. But then, for each method, there's a series of rules that they have to apply, or in some cases the method may be algorithm based. And so it, like if it's in an app or a computer system that, or a device that actually um, tells the women how to interpret it, that may be easier. On the other hand, if it's, if it's um, a method that has more complex rules that they have to learn how to um, use along with their biomarkers that usually takes more time and does involve um, using a teacher that's been certified to help them. Yeah.
1: So there's the, the the learning the biomarker and then and then applying it like correctly and consistently and 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 I, I guess we'll, we'll come on to the evidence later, but I guess that's why there is often quite a big difference between the perfect use effectiveness and and typical use is, is that right yeah
2: that's, that's right. exactly right and and you know we see that pattern um, for other methods of contraception um for, for the methods of contraception that are uh, don't require much user action, things like long-acting reversible methods, IUDs, implants, mm-hmm. these have typical use and perfect use effectiveness rates that are almost identical. Mm-hmm. Um, for methods that require more user action, things like male condoms or diaphragms, um, even the pill to some extent, things that are going to require you know, daily action or more, um, we see more of a gap between perfect use estimates mm-hmm. and typical use estimates. So that that certainly is the case for um, for most of the studies on FABM effectiveness is is generally a difference between the two.
1: Okay I wanted to do we're talking about the term FABM Uh, I think people might be more familiar with natural family planning as a term but um, I understand that they're not the same thing at all.
0: Um, Well again it depends the the field has kind of changed over, I mean, it's actually um, been a field for many years. And I think one of the earlier terms was NFP or natural family planning. However, um, organizations that kind of list fertility awareness-based methods as an option, including the CDC and, and the World Health Organization use currently fertility awareness-based methods, which we think is a more um, broad and inclusive term. And NFP or natural family planning has come to mean um, to be associated more with methods that um, have some religious background and require as a result that users practice abstinence only during the fertile window, um, as opposed to the broader um, thought of fertility awareness-based methods where users can decide what to do during the fertile window and may in fact use a different method if they have intercourse during the fertile window, such as a like a, a barrier method or um, withdrawal.
1: Right, so it's a it's a it's a broader and, and perhaps less the term less laden with with of a meaning.
2: You know, with NFP, um, Rachel highlighted that um, most NFP methods would require abstinence during the fertile window. Um, but for some NFP methods, you know, the the kind of philosophy surrounding use of that method is is even broader with respect to some of the other, you know, belief systems that go along with using that method. So the um, the abstaining from from unprotected sex during the fertile window is one component of that, but sometimes the philosophy is is broader. Right.
1: And. I'm really interested to hear how you each became interested in in this area. Um Rachel is it was it did you special I know you you practice in a, a clinic that offers um FABM uh choices to, to to women, but how how did you get to that point?
0: Well, um when I was um a resident in obstetrics and gynecology, I started um myself being really interested in these methods because I was hearing about them from patients and from friends. And at the time, I was actually more than halfway through my residency, and I did not know how to talk to people about these methods. And I thought there was probably something wrong with that, since I was kind of being trained as a women's health expert, and one of my clinical skills was supposed to be contraceptive counseling. And um, where I lived in North Carolina, I... Found a class to learn more about symptothermal methods, and I actually had to travel an hour and a half from my location to find a teacher. And and I live in a very urban um, academic well, well not urban, but I live in a very um, very much an academic center. So it mm-hmm. wasn't that, that I didn't have good access to healthcare resources. And so I learned that, and I was I was really amazed by um, the ability to learn something well that um, actually showed me so much about my own body and the, the, my own, um, the function of my own reproductive system. And so, um, I just was kind of looking for opportunities to be able to learn more. And I, my, my, um, my boss at the time knew that. And so, um, when this opportunity came up for, um, helping to work in a clinic that was going to offer fertility awareness-based methods, mm. I. Sort of got involved that way, and I also had a research background. So the the clinic that we run, we we hope to um, to conduct research, more research with um, users of these methods, and so it it kind of seemed like a perfect fit for me to be invited to yeah. participate in that, and that Brilliant. kind of.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, what you say about your training, I think this sounds very familiar for myself. You know, as a training as a GP, very little, hardly any. Um, focus on this in, in my own training of, of, of contraceptive counseling. Um, I mean, so why do you think that they, they've been overlooked by the, have they been overlooked by the medical profession? Do you think that's fair or? Um,
0: yeah, I definitely I think that they have been, I don't know about overlooked, but definitely not um, paid attention to. And I think the reasons for that are very complicated. I think that there is a perception that, um, which I know Chelsea wanted, wanted to talk about more, but a perception about their effectiveness, which is, is partly related to some of um, like the minimal mm. information that had been available about effectiveness. Mm. And um, also just because of some of the religious roots and background, um, some sort of um, frustration and maybe um, difficulty communicating, um, between, say, you know, family planning, contraceptive experts, and the fertility awareness community. So, and I think, you know, um, just m- maybe with a, with a more medical um, attitude, we sometimes, unfortunately, aren't always good at listening to what patients want, and instead we can promote things that we feel are best due to the numbers of effectiveness or whatnot, when actually patients and users might care about different things, and so yeah, I think I think they have been. I think they have. I don't know if overlooked is the best word. I'm trying to search for the right word. I don't know, if Chelsea. Can help <laughs> <Okay. with it. laughs>
1: well, well, Chelsea, I, I, how, how have you got in, got into this field yourself? You're you're an epidemiologist by sort of background, is that right?
2: That's right. Yeah. So I'm I'm a researcher um, in sexual and reproductive health. So I work on, you know, a range of topics in sexual and reproductive health, including HIV, abortion, infertility. Um, but one of the main things that I specialize in is work on contraception, um, including, you know, research on safety and efficacy and acceptability and all kinds of aspects of methods. Um, so, you know, something that I come to this work with is a very strong underlying belief that everybody deserves access to high-quality evidence-based information about all of their available contraceptive method options so that they can make an informed decision on the method that best suits their own personal needs and values and lifestyles and, you know, a a firm belief that people need access to a wide range of options. And then I think as a a scientist and kind of a data nerd, I am very drawn towards topics where um, increasing our focus on the available data um, might be able to help at least ideally you know cut through controversial or ideological issues and kind of give us a more evidence-based framework um, with which to have discussions and um so you know kind of along the lines of of what rachel said i as an epidemiologist i kind of find myself simultaneously concerned about several different things in terms of the conversation that I hear around FABMs. Um, In in some circles, I hear, you know, things happening like the rhythm method being conflated with all other FABMs, or kind of a reflexive dismissal of these methods based on um, concerns about um, effectiveness, which I think is perhaps partially based in fact and partially based in misunderstanding of the evidence. And then on the other hand, in other circles, I'm very concerned when I see people promote FABMs by cherry picking evidence um, and and not really paying attention to the full breadth of of information that is available on these methods or by disparaging other contraceptive options in non-scientific ways. Um, So, you know, there's a lot of complexity in this conversation and, and a goal, a personal goal of mine has been to try to help bridge that divide a little bit by really just encouraging a focus on the data, a focus on high quality scientific evidence on all contraceptive options so that people can be you know, empowered and assisted to make evidence-based decisions in achieving whatever their own fertility goals are. Um, so this topic has just been you know, fascinating in multiple aspects to work on from, from that perspective.
1: And I think that leads us nicely on to, to the evidence, which you, um, well, you both have been involved in, haven't you? Can, you? can you talk us through the systematic review and meta-analysis that you published, I think, last year?
2: So, yeah, and, and let me, maybe I'll start just by kind of, you know, framing the issue a little bit in terms of um, before the systematic review. So a number, uh, um, a number that people commonly associate with the failure rate for fertility awareness-based methods is 24 Um, And this was based on um, an estimate that came from uh, an analysis of the National Survey of Family Growth, which is a, a survey, a nationally representative survey in the United States. It's a retrospective survey. And so it asks people to think backwards about methods that they were using, you know, for a span of time prior to being asked during that interview. Um, And And then then it it looks at, at, um, you know, the methods methods that that they reported reported and the the pregnancy outcomes that they um, reported and and calculates an effectiveness rate based on that. Um, There are advantages and disadvantages to um, estimating effectiveness from that kind of information, but particularly for fertility awareness based methods, one of the disadvantages to calculating it it, um, with with that approach is that that there is such such a small number of women in the United States States who are currently using a fertility awareness based method that that it's not possible to estimate effectiveness for for each unique fertility awareness based method. And given given that the majority, over 80% of of people in the the United States States who report using a fertility awareness awareness based method report using calendar rhythm, Um, which is probably one of the least effective FABMs out there, the ultimate estimate when when putting together all of that data um, really pertains largely to an estimate for calendar rhythm. Um, And it doesn't really tell us much about the unique effectiveness profile of other fertility awareness-based methods. So So in in the context context of that, um, then then the other source um, of estimates estimates for effectiveness effectiveness of fertility awareness-based methods are prospective clinical studies. And And that was really really the impetus for um, wanting to to do do the systematic review, was really to better enable a look at at the effectiveness effectiveness profile of each individual FABM. FABM. And And also because perfect perfect use use estimates cannot be derived from those kind of retrospective surveys, but they they can can be derived derived from clinical clinical trials or or prospective prospective surveys, Um, we We also wanted to to pull together the information on that. that. So So with with that that background, background, we decided decided to undertake a systematic systematic review review to basically collect all of the information out there um, uh, that has has looked looked at at the effectiveness of individual FABMs in prospective studies. We did a very comprehensive lit search. We reviewed almost 9,000 citations. We identified 53 relevant studies that pertain to 14 different fertility awareness-based methods. Um, we developed a very um, detailed and comprehensive quality criteria framework, and we evaluated each of those studies against that framework to um, systematically and transparently rank the quality of each study. Um, And then we summarized the best available evidence that that we identified through that process. And in this case, um, we we aimed to rank studies in terms of being either low, moderate, or high quality. Of the 53 studies that we identified, the majority were low quality, 32 out of the 53. Um, And then we identified 21 studies that were moderate quality. And we didn't identify any studies that we considered to be of high quality and so for that reason our systematic review really focuses on summarizing the best available evidence which in this case is of moderate quality Um, so we were able to to, you know summarize evidence on 12 different FABMs that had um, prospective studies considered to be of moderate quality and that's
0: Those Those estimates estimates are are what you see summarized
2: in the the infographic infographic. um, that we've been really excited to work on um, in the process of putting together this uh, article with BMJ.
1: So in the article, though, you've been really clear about uh, the typical use estimates from your systematic review being the best case scenario. Can you just explain that for us, please?
2: Yeah, absolutely. so an important caveat to bear in mind when, when looking at the typical use estimates in our systematic review is that um, these are derived from prospective studies. Um, and you know in epidemiology, we talk about um, the fact that participants who complete prospective studies are not often reflective of the general population. Um, There are often stringent eligibility requirements to participate in a study. There might be personal characteristics um, associated with kind of remaining in a study and and, um, completing all of the study follow-up visits um, or other trial requirements that that might kind of select out uh, certain kinds of people and and keep other kinds of people in the trial. And then also, participants in a trial are just interacting more commonly um, in most trials, Um, With the study investigators and so these are all kinds of things that can influence the kind of person who's in a trial um, and who remains in the trial and so since uh, effectiveness estimates for most other contraceptive methods um, are generally derived from those retrospective surveys that I mentioned earlier um, Which can draw from uh, a larger and more generalizable population? um, clinical studies you know, being kind of in more selected populations with more contact with study investigators um, could be looked at as a best case scenario where, you know, these are kind of likely to be people who are um, very invested in using the method, maybe using it more reliably with assistance from um, interaction with study investigators and things like that.
1: So it's difficult then, isn't it, to, to translate, you know, some fairly technical, complex, um, reasons for it being the best, best case scenario data into that conversation with the patient, um, or patient, the the person who who wants to discuss their options. How do you recommend we, we do that in practice?
0: Um, you know, um, it's, it's something that I do a lot. Um, and it's, um, it's, it's, for one thing, I think that it it starts with the provider, the person who's counseling to actually try to do the best they can to understand the data um because it is a little bit complicated and the limitations and I think um that's part of why we try, as Chelsea said, to focus so much on on the data and and how to understand it and everything that we write about it because it's so it's so important and I think also that um, it could be easy to shortchange what our our patients can understand about the data. But when I have the conversation with them, um, many of them actually really do understand um, the limitations. So for example, I may say, well, you know, um, SensiPlan, double check symptothermal method has been um, studied in in two studies and the effectiveness rates um, appear to be, you know, maybe um, the highest um, among the methods, but then I'll just say, you know, the, the studies were done in Germany and other European countries. And um, most of the participants were um, single, did not have children um, and were highly educated. And so, and, and we kind of might even joke about the differences between American culture and German culture in terms of um, exactness and um, organization. <laughs> and they can understand that that may or may those, those effective mm-hmm. estimates may not apply to them. And, and then we really talk about, um, I think w- what we've all touched on earlier, which is this difficulty with, uh, between perfect and imperfect use and really just helping them understand that um, because we're all human beings, it's very hard to be perfect, <laughs> and it's very hard to be a perfect user. And I think most patients can understand that, and they can also understand about themselves. You know, for example, I know about myself that I would find it very difficult to take my temperature every day and record it, um, because I'm not—I um, would not be a perfect user of a temperature-based method. But um, I might be a perfect user of a mucus-based method or a method where I just had to record my my uh, menstrual cycle dates, and so. Um, just having a patient-centered conversation about their lifestyle, about what um, would work or not work for them, an honest conversation about um, the difference between using a method correctly and consistently, and the fact that most of us don't for any method, um, except the ones that are really hard to use and perfectly, like um, long-acting reversible contraceptives. So, um, those are the types of conversations I have, um, and I'm I'm constantly evolving and um, in my counseling and trying to really listen to patients and trying to understand what they understand and having them explain back to me what they understand. And um, I think those are my best pieces of advice. Yeah,
1: yeah. that must take quite a long time. I mean, you, you, how long do you spend with, with your patients?
0: Right, well, it can take a long time. Um, and I think contraceptive counseling in general can take a long time to, when it's done correctly. Um, which I don't think we always put the time in to do correctly for any method. But um, for one thing it, at our clinic, and also I, I work at um, at our state health department in North Carolina, where we um, manage a lot of the local health departments that do family planning services. And um, in both of those locations, we heavily rely on trained nurse educators and nurse mm-hmm. counselors to help patients. So that, um, you know, in, if If I've trained my nurse educators um, to understand the data and to understand, you know we, we have some decision making tools, and now we have a great new infographic that may be a tool. Um, if we've trained them to use the methods um, correctly, they can um, they can actually do a lot of this with patients. I would add that you know one other
2: thing that may be um, meaningful to people interested in using these methods. To be aware of um, is that you know, in contrast to many, not all other contraceptive methods, most FABMs um, have not gone through regulatory approval. So there is one um, app called Natural Cycles that has been approved in the EU and the US for use as a contraceptive method, um, but but many other FABMs have not gone through that process, and um, you know, as we discuss in the systematic review, some have moderate quality evidence, but but many other methods exist that don't even have moderate or low low quality quality evidence. evidence. So I think, you know, know, I, I don't, I don't, as somebody, who's, As somebody not who's not a clinician, um, you know, how you translate you know, that, you into, translate the that clinic, into the clinic, I think, clinic you know, be is, is beyond my pay grade. But, um, but um, I think that I may think also that be also another, another important factor, factor for people, people to be aware, of, aware who, of who, you know, may be um, um, invested, invested in using a method that has gone through that process or not. That's, you know, that's to their decision. Sorry. Are, there, are there other, other things to we'll make sure you always
1: discuss with a patient, so, so this this are, these, are these are the, the situations, situations where, where I really would recommend, recommend you use one of these methods? methods?
0: Right. right, well, well I mean, the, the, the main um, situation situations is really important, important to, um, to understand with patients is, is, is how, how much agency they have in their relationship, relationship or their relationships to negotiate sex, sex and, to negotiate and to negotiate when they have it and, it and whether or not, or not they use barrier um, methods and things, and things like that. that. So, so these methods, methods could be, be used by somebody, somebody who, did, who did, wasn't was in a relationship, relationship where… um. um or, 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 didn't, or have didn't have partners with whom, with whom that, that they, they could decide for themselves and have their own agency, agency about when to have sex and when to, and when to use a barrier, barrier method. So so that's that like number one. one. Hmm. And then, and then um, but it doesn't um, mean, um, that, those it doesn't mean, mean um, that those women women couldn't learn could learn about their bodies. bodies. Just it means just means that they're probably not going to be able to use the method effectively if they can't if they can't choose when to have sex or not. And then, I think that. One of the other big things things I like to talk to people people about is is the regularity of their cycles. Many Many of the methods methods can be used with long and irregular cycles, Um, but Um, but it can can, can be more challenging, challenging. and so so helping helping them understand understand what that that will look look like. Um, Um, For example, um, for for some of the methods methods that have have temperature components like natural cycles cycles and and um, um, plan, the plan. If, they if they have very, very irregular, irregular cycles, cycles the, the, the method, method may tell them um, to, avoid um, to avoid unprotected intercourse for a long periods of, period of time. So just, so just maybe, maybe that's okay with them, them or, maybe or maybe it's, it's not. not. So, so, but, understanding but understanding that ahead of time. Ahead of time um, also, because... because the typical, the typical use pregnancy, pregnancy rate, is, rate is, you know, can be a lot higher than, say, than, say the, high the high, most really highly effective methods, methods like um, IEDs IUD and plants sterilization. And sterilization. People, People who have who a have really strong medical reason, reason to avoid pregnancy, avoid pregnancy may, may want to want choose a highly, highly effective, effective method, method. Um, um, and, would be, and would be encouraged to, be to do so. so. Um, that, being um, that being said, said I have, you know, patients who... Um, for their, for their own, own religious and moral and reasons, reasons um, don't, don't feel, feel that, they, that can they can use any, use any method except a fertility, fertility awareness-based method. And so um, we need we to have a conversation about how we can help them use that effectively in the setting where they, the setting they have, have a strong medical reason, reason to avoid pregnancy.
1: I just want to ask you each to give us maybe two or three points each that you think are the most most important things that that listeners who perhaps consult women about their contraceptive choices, you know, things that that they maybe would, most important things for them to know about FABMs?
0: I think the most important to me is that um, providers who are counseling um, users about these methods should just really um, educate themselves about these methods and Start being able to include them to some degree into the conversation with with users who may want to 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 use these methods. I think um, instead of sort of avoiding the topic or not not broaching it, because um, women really want um, to know more and deserve to know more, and not that they're methods that everyone will use, but that um, they should be part of. the the array of options available to women. And um, I think secondly, that we have tried to provide um, a a resource in our systematic review so that um, those counselors and providers can talk to women in in an evidence-based way about what we do and don't know about the effectiveness. And I think that um, the third thing would just be for this and for any other method, I really, hope that we can all strive to be more patient-centered and to listen to patients' wishes and desires as we, as we have conversations with them. And I think they'll help guide us into, into understanding what they need to know and, and help teach us about what we should be learning about.
1: And I think the uh, infographic and article on, on the BMJ website is, is a good place to start, isn't it? Um, Chelsea? Chelsea?
0: to folks
2: in the medical community who may be less familiar with FABMs, uh, you know, I would echo her call to familiarize yourself with the evidence base on these methods, be prepared to talk to people interested in using them without being dismissive of the methods. Um, uh, you know, if 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 people feel that they cannot come to medical providers to get reliable information on these options, they will seek out information from other and potentially less reliable sources and we, and we've seen that happen. Um, And so ensuring that, you know, providers are are equipped to discuss these options with patients, I think is very important. And then I think to people who are already very excited about FABMs or interested in using them, um, just I would encourage them to be very open to the evidence. As our systematic review showed, um, you know, at present, we have A small number of moderate quality studies for each individual FABM, and that's a great start, and that gives us an idea of um, what effectiveness we might expect from these methods. But more data are needed um, to ensure that these rates are robust. And so when it comes to something as important as managing your fertility, you really want to be sure that you're basing your decisions on, on solid evidence so that you can make an informed decision that's best for you.
1: You've been listening to Rachel Arrutia and Chelsea Pollis talk about fertility awareness based methods of contraception. The clinical update is now available on bmj.com. That's it for this podcast, but we'll be back soon with more free CPD. Subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Tom Nolan. Bye for now.